One of my favorite food writers is MFK Fisher, and she wrote this. I am more modest now, but I still think that one of the pleasantest of all emotions is to know that I, I with my brain and my hands, have nourished my beloved few. That I have concocted a stew or a story, a rarity or a plain dish, to sustain them truly against the hungers of the world. Food, in its preparation and in sharing it, it's about much more than food. That part is important, too. Please don't misunderstand me. I love to eat and to eat well. But in the right hands and with the right pen, food is something more. When the food is really delicious and the stories are well told, then you're into that realm, the realm of sustaining truly against the hungers of the world. But let's make this a little less esoteric and a little more practical, shall we? I've discovered another favorite food writer. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Hello, welcome back. It is great to be together again. For anyone dropping by for the first time, I am Graham, and this is Chef Demoni. This is a podcast, but you knew that already. It's a podcast on which I talk to chefs and sometimes food-loving lawyers, and on really special occasions like today, to a guest who speaks to both professions. I'm really excited to get to today's conversation. So, so what can I say? I'm just going to tell you. My guest is the wonderful thoughtful, creative, articulate, and and as I learned through the process of requesting and organizing this interview, the super friendly, super easy to talk to, Joanne Molinaro, aka the Korean Vegan. By way of profession, Joanne is a trial lawyer. By way of creativity, great cooking, and thought-provoking social media, the Korean Vegan is a creator you need to know, on the off chance that you don't already. Joanne is also an author, having recently published The Korean Vegan Cookbook. The recipes in this book are great, and Joanne and I talk about a couple of them in detail today. But this book is a lot more. It's an exploration of experiences, of tradition and family, of cultures, and of a way of living in the world. Seriously, get a copy. You will love the food, and the writing and the stories are very, very much worth your time. I've been curling up with this book and a cup of coffee for early morning reading lately. Today, Joanne and I get into her work in law, and we talk trials and depositions for a bit, and also compare litigation to cooking. They are more similar than you might think. Joanne also describes her transition to veganism and how she balances tradition, for which she has much respect, with the way she has chosen to live and to cook and to consume. Okay, is this tradition worth preserving? At what cost? Or is there something wherein I can retain and preserve the spirit of this tradition while transitioning to something that might be more compassionate, more in line with my personal values? You'll hear some specific examples on how Joanne creates Korean dishes now that take the animal products out while staying true to both tradition and to a vegan ethic. Joanne also shares an incredibly quick and, and delicious, I've made it, incredibly quick recipe and a couple of her favorite restaurants in Chicago. One of the things I was really keen to ask Joanne about was the degree to which she shares her personal story with the world. This extends so far beyond food 
and touches on themes as varied as body positivity and domestic violence. I had to ask whether her practice and identity as a lawyer show up in Joanne's work as the Korean vegan. In other words, what does advocacy look like outside the courtroom? And there is no doubt that in her Korean vegan work, Joanne is advocating. When I tell a story, it always is intentional. There is a message in every single one, and one that I hope is left on your heart after 60 seconds, one that you think about, that you turn over, that maybe changes your life in a small way. Joanne is indeed working to change things, and we have a great talk about how self-interest can actually be a catalyst for doing the right thing. It's a concept I've often mentioned on this show in a very specific context, which is be kind and gracious to restaurant staff and you will create a better experience for yourself. As you'll hear today, Joanne applies that same thinking much more broadly, and she shares a great story about it featuring a Buddhist nun in Korea. All right, let's get to it. There is so much in this talk. Join us. Here's my conversation with Joanne Molinaro. Joanne, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. It's wonderful to connect between Gibson's British Columbia and Los Angeles, California. I'm super excited to speak with the Korean vegan. Thank you for being here. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, we are going to get to the focus of the show, which is food, of course. We'll get there really soon. But I do want to start with the other half of the equation to this podcast, which is is the law side. And you're the perfect guest because you combine cooking and a legal career. I know you've made some recent changes. We will come to those. But please tell us a little bit about your work as a trial attorney. I understand you're are or were at uh, Foley and Lardner out of Chicago. And uh, I'd love to hear more about your work. Yeah. So I, I've been with Foley and Lardner since the very beginning of my career. I had my summer associateship there. I don't remember how, what year it was. Uh, it was a while ago and I've been there ever since I'm probably what they call a lifer. I'm just to start backwards. I am currently of counsel at Foley and Lardner. So I still work with the firm. But prior to that, I was a partner in the litigation department, and my primary practice group was actually bankruptcy and restructuring. But I would say, like many of the bankruptcy practitioners, which is housed under the litigation department, at least at Foley and Lardner, I was doing a lot of just straight up general commercial litigation. So I was very much a trial lawyer, and I would say more than most, I was sort of helicoptered into the big, ugly, complex Chapter 11 cases that required evidentiary hearings, i.e. trials. So I was doing trials in my commercial practice, largely antitrust class action and fraud lawsuits, as well as complex chapter 11 litigation. Wow, that is a lot. Here's here's a, a, a law cooking question. So I've worked most of my adult life as a lawyer. I've always done, until recently, I've always done uh, litigation on the civil side, both in private practice and then in, in some regulatory bodies. I have noticed some similarities between the two worlds, which takes some people by surprise at first, but I've, I've really seen some similarities between litigation and cooking. Have you noticed any overlaps in, in your two focuses of interest? 
Yeah, I would say some. It's really funny. I was on this show on the Food Network called Cooks versus Cons, where I basically had to con the judges into thinking that I was a professional chef, even though, of course, I wasn't. And all of my colleagues, they tuned in for the, the premiere of that particular episode. And the resounding comment was, oh, she cooks like she trials. <laughs> So it was really sort of funny. Uh, I think that there is a level, at least for me, I like to be overly prepared in the kitchen. I walk into a recipe development the same way I would walk into a deposition or a trial, which is I've got my outline in advance. I'm very prepared. I know exactly what I need. And I'm all about efficiency. I think lawyers in particular, and this is something that I have seen and learned over the pandemic, as many of us are now working from home, I've seen the working styles of non-lawyers up close and personal now, and I realize, wow, <laughs> people are really into <laughs> wasting time when they're not paying by the 0.1 hour, <laughs> and uh, right. lawyers are, are not. So that is something, again, that I take into the kitchen with me. There's nothing like that feeling of being completely and well prepared, whether that's for a trial or whether it's for a recipe. And and also not nothing quite like that feeling of being unprepared or not as prepared as you'd like to be when you've got a task in front of you. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are different kinds of fire drills, right? There's the kind that literally involves fire on your stove or in your oven. And then, of course, there's the fire <laughs> yeah. drill that happens at trial when you can't find your exhibit binder. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely been there. Joanne, I think one of the reasons that you have such a huge following is that you share so much. Uh, you, of course, create great food content, and we're, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about that. But you also share a lot of personal stuff. And before we get into the cooking realm and still sticking with the law side, one post of yours comes to mind, and it was about wanting to reaching out to a work buddy of yours at the law firm and not wanting to go to meetings without this work buddy or having somebody to to sit next to you at a meeting. And and that struck me because it's I think something all of us feel or many of us feel. But there is something, and I think this is changing, there's some hesitancy among lawyers particularly to show any kind of vulnerability or, or discomfort with something. Anyway, can you tell us about that? Why was that piece important for you to share? Oh, that was so funny. That was actually just a tweet that I reshared onto my Instagram. And I was like, oh, this is like the most engaged post that I've had in a long time because <laughs> so many people related to it. And I think that there are a couple of things. Number one, my work BFF happens to be the head of my practice group at you know the National uh, Bankruptcy Group in, at Foley and Lardner, Jeff Goodman, who's an incredible lawyer, one of the smartest persons I know. And I'm so lucky that I have him. And whenever young people in particular, especially young lawyers, ask me, how can I feel safe at work? How can I get past this, you know, bout of burnout or, you know, everything that you and I have been through in our legal practices? I always say the number one thing is to have that work BFF, somebody that you get together with as often as possible at 2.30 p.m. to make your Starbucks run together with, you know, whatever it is. That's what kept me going and what made work fun, honestly. But I think you're totally right. There is this hesitancy to reveal any type of vulnerability. And I would say particularly women 
because we're already sort of typecast as being not aggressive enough, not assertive enough, you know, not tough enough that, you know, we're too emotional, et et cetera. I've, I've gotten that stereotype so many times. And so there is this hesitancy to show the fact that we're human. We enjoy being social with people, but sometimes we feel a little insecure. I would say in the legal profession, more often than not, there are a lot of us who were nerds in high school and, and maybe even in college and, you know, maybe we're a little bit shy. And so I think that, you know, we don't all have to be that slick, you know, smooth, uh, give the best closing argument trial lawyer outside of the courtroom. We're just not all those people. And unfortunately, if we feel like we can't reveal that and we can't be vulnerable about that, what that ultimately leads to, in my opinion, is burnout, really premature burnout. I think I think you're exactly right. And good on you for sharing that, because, you know, I, I shared a few questions from friends of mine who asked me to ask them of you and we'll, and we'll come to those. But what I hear in response to your content is not just, wow, this is great food, but it's thank goodness she said that because that's exactly how I'm feeling. And I love that somebody else has put that out there and started the conversation. So let's move. Let's move into the food world. You are, of course, known as the Korean vegan, but the, I think there was some hesitancy for you when you when you made the transition to a vegan diet. So please tell us about that and and what I think you felt as maybe a threat to your Koreanness. Yeah, so I wasn't very familiar with veganism. At the time, my then boyfriend, now husband, suggested that the two of us adopt a plant-based diet. I was largely in belief that vegans were sort of militant and superior, all those stereotypes that now people have of me. (laughs) But I think beyond (laughs) that, uh, yeah, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to eat Korean food anymore because I didn't know any single person who was both Korean and vegan. And I also was familiar enough with Korean food to know that large amount of it was not just, you know, Korean barbecue, which I think is what a lot of people think of when they think of Korean food, but also fish sauce and shrimp paste. Those are the two ingredients in kimchi, you know, which is very endemic to Korean food. And I was like, so you can take my kimchi from me. And I think part (laughs) of it was also that, you know, my boyfriend was not Korean. And I was like, you have no idea what you're asking of me. And he didn't, but it wasn't as big a deal as I made it out to be in my head. I was very anxious about it, but ultimately that anxiety was born more out of the fact that I knew so little about Korean cuisine to begin with. And once I began to unpeel the layers of Korean cuisine, I not only realized how easy it is to transition to a plant-based diet while still eating Korean food, but also the rich history of plant-based cuisine in Korean food itself. And a big step of your exploring that, of course, has been your cookbook, which arrived on my doorstep a few weeks ago. I've been loving it. I, I want to here, here are some of the, the themes that I've picked out of your book. There's talk. There's a lot of talk about your family. There's a lot of talk of family experiences and, and some negative experiences, food scarcity, your parents being children of war immigrant experiences and challenges, you're you're yearning as a kid to just have spaghetti and McDonald's every now and again. And so I'll bring this to a question, but I'm going to go to a specific story. This is on page 239. 
of the Korean Vegan Cookbook. And this is in the introduction to your recipe. I'm going to ask you for the Korean name because I will not pronounce it. But these are spicy, crunchy garlic wings made with Mm. tofu. And this story struck a chord with me for two reasons. One, it pulls together many of the themes in your book that that I've just talked about. And two, as a kid, I loved Ponderosa Restaurant too. <laughs> so, so here, here is what you said on page two thirty nine, or part of it. Uh, my grandmother on my mother's side loved the concept of all you can eat buffets. When we were little, our family's favorite restaurant on earth was Ponderosa for its endless refills on not just drinks, but plates. For someone who spent the majority of her life outrunning starvation, the sight of her grandchildren bringing back their eighth plate of chicken wings and chocolate cake brought my grandmother incalculable joy. So please tell us about your experiences at Ponderosa and and how they resonated differently for different generations. I think that for... My entire family, Ponderosa, was always such a special occasion treat that was subsequently much later in life, like when I was an adult, replaced with like those riverboat casino, all you can eat buffets, like any buffet, like my family was down. Like, I mean, we were all into the buffet. For and for my grandmother's generation and my even my parents, of course, it was such a moment of my God, we like, how have we gotten here? How did we arrive to such a place of abundance where we're allowed to eat as much as we want plate after plate until we're bloated from fullness to the point where we're not actually feeling good anymore instead of the other way around? It is indescribable joy, indescribable relief. I can't even begin to describe the level of desperation that was felt so much of their lives to essentially be, you know, snuffed out with a meal at Ponderosa. For my generation, for me and my brother, it was like, hey, we can eat American food. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> we got spaghetti, yeah, French fries, chicken nuggets, like all of what we thought was luxurious food. So it was very different from our perspective, but some of my fondest memories are with my whole family, you know, going back plate after plate under those heat lamps for what I can now only (laughs) think of as like the most like, you know, unhealthy food imaginable, (laughs) but it was still so good. (laughs) (laughs) So, so good. Yes. I remember the popcorn shrimp. It was, uh, it was something else. There is another line on that page of your book that caught my eye, and and it follows on you exclaiming as a kid about just how many chicken wings your grandmother had eaten. And when you said that, that prompted your mother to say, you embarrassed her. And then you write this in your book. You say, even then, at 10 years old, I knew what a truly horrible thing it was to embarrass your grandmother. And I wished then what I wish even now, that I could go back in time and shut myself up. But I can't. And what I want to ask you here, Joanne, this is about a tension that I sometimes perceive in your writing and your posts, and it's a tension between the immense respect you clearly have for family and tradition, on the one hand, and then the commitment you have to following your own voice, on the other hand. So you're not afraid to talk about things, if I'm getting any of this wrong, please correct me, but I think you're not afraid to talk about things that I tend to sense the older generations in your family would not be uh, mm-hmm. comfortable with. So recent examples, you talked on on Instagram about getting your period at age nine and you talked uh, and talking to your grandmother about it. You've you've talked about things like domestic violence. So I guess what I'm asking is, how do you walk the line between tradition and respect 
but also speaking powerfully about about the issues that clearly matter to you and and to your followers. Well, that's not an easy thing all the time. And it's also a line that continues to move as I continue to grow, as my reach continues to grow, and as my own story continues to develop. I think in the beginning, I thought, oh, I could just share anything however I want in whatever voice I want. And I quickly realized that, well, when you have millions and millions of people listening to these words, you have to be fairly more calculating and not in a bad way, but in a respectful way and intentional about the words that you choose, the stories that you share. I have to be very respectful of my family's privacy. Not everyone in my family is okay with having our stories completely published. So there are certain people who never make it into my Instagram posts and my social media posts out of respect to them. My parents, I'm very lucky. My mother in particular, she's very Americanized and in many ways is probably a bit more social media savvy than the average, you know, 70 (laughs) three-year-old. She's on all of the social media platforms. She follows me on all of them. And she's also an avid reader and in my mind, an incredible writer. So I think she very much understands the power of storytelling. And she and I have always had a fairly candid, sometimes uncomfortably candid relationship. So to her, I think, and, and she and my father matter to me the most in terms of their opinion and their comfort level about the sharing of these stories. I think One thing that I've learned, particularly as I continue to really lean into my veganism, and by that I don't just mean my diet, but, you know, all of the aspects of my life, many of them are at odds with Korean tradition and, you know, Korean ways of living. And I constantly have to calculate, okay, is this tradition worth preserving at what cost? Or is there something wherein I can retain and preserve the spirit of this tradition while transitioning to something that might be more compassionate, more in line with my personal values? And I think that's always the balance that I have to strike. And it's one that I have to reevaluate. I guess that's sort of a vague way of answering this question beyond saying that I think that tension is necessary. I think a blind, continued preservation of traditions without challenging them, without pushing them, without questioning whether or not they make sense today is not healthy. It doesn't promote growth. And that's always what I'm trying to do. I love that answer. Maybe maybe you can tie it back into the (laughs) the chicken wing recipe a little bit, because (laughs) this is clearly different from from Korean chicken wings that I've had. So please tell us the name of the dish in Korean. And then if you could give a brief description of how it's made, because I love what you do as the replacement for the bones here. Um, and that may be in part because my 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 favorite restaurant in Vancouver is Burdock & Co. But um, ah, over to you, what is yeah. the dish and, and, and how do you do it? So it's called kampungi. And if you are uh, Korean, then Korean American, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Kampungi is one of the most popular Korean dishes. It's actually Chinese Korean. You probably wouldn't find it at a Korean Korean restaurant. You would only find it at one of those hybrid Korean Chinese restaurants. And there are restaurants in Chicago that literally have pictures on the wall based upon how many chicken wings they've consumed. It's really that popular. They're totally addicted 
addictive. And we would go there all the time. There were specific spots in Chicago near K-Town that really specialized in kampungi. And so this recipe was an homage to a lot of different things. It was an homage to all of those family dinners, birthdays, graduation, where the kids, you know, the second generation said, hey, let's go get some kampungi in K-Town. And we would go together. And even when we were old enough to drive ourselves and we didn't have to have our parents with us, that was where we elected to go. And I have so many wonderful memories there with my cousins and my brother and and all of that. And then, of course, like, you, you know, we discussed it is an homage to that story about my grandmother. And again, that idea that she persevered, her resilience her mental toughness, her commitment to her family, and how that was rewarded every single time we were able to go to Ponderosa and how she was entitled to have 15 plates of chicken wings if that's what she wanted, because that's what she had earned. You know, so that's really what it is. But again, my values at this time are, you know what, I don't need chicken wings to survive. I can do just fine without eating chicken wings and causing harm to, you know, all these chicken I I don't need that. So let's figure out a way where we can preserve that joy, preserve that respect, preserve that resilience, all of those memories that I have, but do it in a way that doesn't cost chickens their lives. So what I did was I created the meat with tofu, which is my favorite protein because it's a complete protein and it's one that I grew up eating, as well as jackfruit, which gives you that sort of kind of fleshy uh, feel and texture. And then I added the bones, if you will, by using burdock root. And the only reason I thought of that was because my mom, she makes this incredible panchan, which is you know Korean side dish with burdock root. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. And it's also so in line with Korean cuisine since so much of Korean food relies on that root. So I figured we'll put it together and it turned out great. And the best thing about it is you can eat the whole thing, bones and all, which you cannot do if you're eating regular chickens. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Absolutely one of your recipes that I'm going to try and and to share it with some vegan friends. They will love it. Uh, Joanne, I want to return. Yes, they will. For sure they will. I want to return now a little bit to your lawyer identity, because I think I see it coming through in much of your work in the space that you've created as the Korean vegan. And, And what I'm thinking here is that so much of your work is advocacy, and it's advocacy for people who are dealing with real challenges, which is to say that you're sticking up for people. So two examples come to mind. Your posts on anti-Asian hate, which has horrifically been growing in both both in your country and in mine, and your general empowerment on that issue of your followers to say F- you to these idiots who are, are promoting racist comments. And then the other one that struck me uh, recently was uh, body positivity, because on top of everything else, you're now a swimsuit model. And so many of your <laughs> followers have reacted so enthusiastically to you to you taking on that role. So finally to get to a question, do you identify as lawyerly in your in your Korean vegan work? So what does what does advocacy mean outside the courtroom? I definitely consider myself to be an advocate in the Korean vegan and the advocacy that I undertake as the Korean vegan is very similar to the tools that I used as a lawyer. 
I was a very different kind of advocate in that I was advocating on behalf of my clients. Whereas now I feel like I'm advocating on behalf of issues that I personally relate to or personally feel strongly about, right? But I think that here's the way that I liked to advocate even in the courtroom, particularly in a deposition room. My style of deposition taking is very Joanne, which is I'm disarming. I go in there and you know, my style has always been, I want you eating out of my hands at the end of this deposition because you don't know what's coming. And, and that's, that's how I operate all the time. Some people are aggressive. I've seen that effective as well, particularly men, because I think that they're sort of filling shoes that they feel like they are required to wear in some ways. And so when I come into a deposition and instead of, you know, pounding you with interrupting questions and snarkiness, and instead I sit there and I talk about your kids for 15 minutes and tell you all about my tattoos, then I get all the admissions that I need and some that I didn't know I needed. Right. So that's my style. And I take that very much in stride in my Korean veganing. When I tell a story, it always is intentional. There is a message in every single one and one that I hope is left on your heart after 60 seconds, one that you think about, that you turn over, that maybe changes your life in a small way. And the only reason that that seed gets planted in someone's heart is because I spend, you know, 55 seconds trying to disarm them, making them trust me, making them know that I'm a safe person, that this is a safe space for you to open your heart to me. So that's really what it is. There is, however, five seconds where I'm being fairly direct about what it is I'm challenging you to do, whether it's the punchline of a story or simply saying this is unacceptable and you should think it's unacceptable as as well. Well, I can tell you it has resonated not only with me, but with with some specific friends who we're going to we're going to turn to now. So let, let's shift back. It's all interrelated, of course, which is what I love about your content. But let's move back a little bit away from the lawyerly and back toward the food and to some more food specific questions. When I first reached out to you, as I said earlier, I had some friends who wanted me to ask questions of you. So the first comes from my friend Lee. She and her family live close to me and my wife here on the Sunshine Coast of BC. And she had asked, this was before I had a copy of your book, she asks for a vegan option to replace classic bulgogi. And in the time Mm -hmm. since I had that question from Lee, I've got my copy of your book. And I now know that the answer to that question is on page 235. I also know that you encourage people to explore Korean food beyond its best known dishes, of which this is one for sure. But you also say that any Korean cookbook, even a vegan one, wouldn't be worth its salt if it did not include some grilled deliciousness. So maybe just walk us through quickly, please, Joanne, how you took the classic grilled steak dish and made it vegan. Yeah. So for me, I've always believed that 90% of the deliciousness of Korean barbecue was the sauce. I I mean, that's me. Yeah. You know, maybe that's just because I never really was a big fan of meat to begin with, but I always felt like, Hey, you just slap this sauce over anything. It's going to taste delicious. So it always starts with really good Korean barbecue sauce. And my mom happens to make an excellent Korean barbecue sauce. So that's in the basics chapter. And of course, you're going to find that again, marinating whatever protein or meat substitute you ultimately decide to use for prugogi, for kalbi, even for, you know, I, I think I had a dish for 
pork belly, you know, my take on pork belly, if you will. For bulgogi, I was trying to find a texture that worked in terms of at least reminding you of bulgogi. And I didn't want to use mushrooms because I feel like okay, mushrooms is used a lot. And I use mushrooms a lot too in my cooking. And so I kind of was doing a lot of research. I wanted to see what people were doing in Korea in particular uh, to try and replace those textures. And I saw a lot of people were using soy curls. So I was like, okay, let me try using soy curls. I, I don't know what they're like. And I found that, wow, this actually does a really good job of reminding me of the, you know, if you're Korean, you'll know the jjulgyeo. means the chew, the chewiness of bulgogi. And when it's sitting there marinating in this glorious Korean barbecue marinade with some really delicious fresh green onions and some garlic, and you throw that on a hot piping grill like for Memorial Day, oh my gosh, I mean... I don't know anyone who's going to be like, ew, this tastes bad. I, I Literally, you could have anything in that sauce and it'll taste good. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be good. Okay. Well, that is the second dish on my the top of my list. I'm going to move, uh, as I said, I'm going to shift back now a little bit to the lawyerly side. I've got a, two questions. And this comes from my friend Jenny, who is a lawyer colleague of ours. And here's her first question. She said, lawyers tend to be risk averse, or at least myself and many lawyers. I know habitually approach all things professionally with a pretty robust cost benefit or risk analysis. I've often struggled with my own aversion to risk or lack of spontaneity. And I fully acknowledge that I almost always follow the practical safe path as opposed to even considering potential new or exciting paths that may bear great risk but also great reward. So how do you, Joanne, navigate the personal and professional risks of first opening yourself up to so many on social media and second, taking the leap to stepping away from your legal career or at least changing your legal career to pursue your exciting but no doubt less predictable new path? That's a great question because I'm incredibly risk averse to. I know this about myself and I agree. I think many lawyers are that way. I think partly because it is our jobs to be very well versed with what those risks actually are. And by that, not just the imminence of something, but the gravity of those consequences. We really take a lot of time figuring out what the scope of the consequences are and what they will look like, how damaging they can be. With regard to the first part, which is the risk associated with sharing my vulnerability and some of the softer sides of me, I think there I had a severe blind spot. It's very hard to imagine what happens when you're post, which usually gets 500 views, all of a sudden gets 1 million views the next day. <laughs> like it, There's just no way wow. to know what the effect of that is. And I remember the first time it happened to me, I deleted my post and I called my CEO and I told him that I would never post anything related to that on TikTok ever again, because I was afraid I was going to lose my job. That is a very normal, yeah. I think, response and reaction to going viral, normal for us as lawyers, probably not normal for the 15 year old kid whose dream it is to go viral. My dream wasn't to go, to go viral. viral. Sure. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to go viral. I was very scared of going viral. So I didn't know the risk. I wasn't adequately informed of it. But slowly, I would say slowly, relatively speaking, as in it took a 
several weeks, um, especially after speaking with my firm's PR uh, manager to make sure they were in lockstep with everything that I was doing on my social media, I became much more acclimated to that level of attention and what that meant for my career and ultimately what that meant for me personally. I think that really then dovetails into the second part of the question, which is how do you manage the risks associated with maybe pushing away from your legal career or at least stepping from it in a deliberate way. And I think there, when you talk about being risk averse and when you talk about taking the safe path, safe for what? What is that safety? Like, what does that even look like? What is your objective in life? For me, I think I inherited the risks that my parents were always afraid of, which is risk of starvation, risk of poverty. That was really built into the way that I thought. And so losing that paycheck or losing some financial stability was incredibly like, what are you doing? Like, why would you even know? I'm going to have a 401k. Like that was very much built into me. But ultimately what I discovered within a very safe framework, I might add, which is incredibly privileged position to be in, you know, I had a nice 401k. I was making six figures every single year. Within that framework, I was able to think about what does safety actually look like? Maybe financial security, maybe having food on the table is only, you know, one component of safety. What about my mental health? What about my inheritance of joy? Don't I get a stake in that? Don't I get to be happy in my daily life? Don't I get to have some purpose? And am I doing the things necessary to facilitate the growth of those objectives, that kind of safety? And I realized that I wasn't really fulfilling my potential in that way. I will say when I ultimately decided to shift gears and go full-time as the Korean vegan, I did a lot of lawyery things. I saved enough money to pay my rent for over a year. I put way more than I probably needed to to pay off the year before taxes, which if you're a partner at a law firm, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, We had more than enough money if worse came to worse, where we could survive without even touching our retirement funds. And I also made sure that after I shifted gears to go full time, that I would still be putting money away into my 401k. So not every creator does that. Like not every person who goes from being a lawyer to being a creator does that, but that's what this lawyer did. And I think it's irresponsible for people who say, oh, I'm going to quit my job and do something, you know, become a business owner or be an entrepreneur or do something more creative to not really talk about And there are a lot of practical things that maybe you should do to make sure that you don't fall flat on your face, (laughs) you know? I I love that answer for a whole bunch of reasons. But what you just said last, like it it ain't as easy as it looks. Nothing is as easy as it looks. And you know that from running trials, from creating recipes, everything is hard work, including this transition. And what a beautiful concept to expand the definition of safety to include mental health, to include joy, to include fulfillment. That may be my number one takeaway from this interview. So thank you for those thoughts. But I have more questions. <laughs> and the next <laughs> the next the next one is Jenny's as well. It's less deep, but I I'm it's super keen to hear your answer. Even though you're in LA now, what are a couple of your favorite Chicago restaurants? Ooh, okay. So there are two that come to mind immediately. First is Kale My Name. It is a restaurant on Montrose and Addison. And they just have like fun vegan food that is executed very, very well. I think that what I've discovered from 
A, eating at virtually every all-vegan restaurant in Chicago, and B, cooking my own food that nine out of 10 times I prefer my own food. And that's not just being cocky. That's just me saying, I just I just like eating my own food. It tastes better to me. Kale My Name is one of the few places where I feel like I, you know what? They're about as good as my own food. <laughs> so I won't okay, say that they're okay. better than my so own they, food, but they reach that yeah, they're about as yeah good as my own food. And they've got a variety of things on their menu that I like to eat. And it's just a fun sort of place to hang. The other place, where I would say the same thing is Spirit Elephant. And that's not in Chicago, the city. It's in Winnetka, which is actually where I grew up. I grew up in Wilmette, so in that area, and I went to high school in Winnetka. So not only does it bring me back to the place that I grew up, it's an absolutely beautiful restaurant. You walk in there and you feel like you're in the Hamptons. It's just so pretty in there. The owner is very mission-centric. She you know, believes in compassion, but she also believes in food being your medicine. And that's reflected in her menu, which is absolutely delicious, but also incredibly intentional. Thank you. And Jenny, there you go for your next trip to Chicago. Um, Our next question comes from my good friend, Shannon. Uh, She is the most committed vegan that I know personally. And when I reached out to her and said anything you want to ask, she said, she's also very practical. She said, "Eh, most of the usual questions everybody asks of vegans, you can get those answers online. That's easy enough. So Shannon asked me to ask you this instead. What is the question that you wish someone would ask you? Hmm, That's a really good question. And this, I think Shannon may like to hear as a vegan. I was just, I actually did an interview a couple days ago and it had been the first time anyone had asked me, what is the moral reason for going vegan? Like nobody has ever asked me that, which I found kind of like odd. (laughs) And I was really grateful. Like, oh yeah, somebody actually wants to know. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) I think that is one question maybe people for like take for granted, or maybe they're not interested in hearing because they're worried that it might make them feel a certain way about how they eat. But I think sometimes people think that I don't have a moral justification for going vegan because (laughs) I talk about so many other things on my platform. I don't spend a lot of time talking about the ethics underlying my choices, but There is a very strong ethical reasoning for my decision, and it's one that I continue to study a lot because I never, this is, this is the lawyer in me. I don't like showing up unprepared. I do not want my Mm -hmm. adverse party, adverse opposing counsel to know more about a topic than I do. So I always come to a discussion about veganism, knowing exactly why I am vegan, why I eat the way I do and what that means and why I think everyone else should go vegan in my opinion. So like that's that's the way that I come prepared. And I do think about it quite a lot. And what are, I can speculate on some of them, but I'd love to hear, what are the key reasons for veganism? Animal wealth, welfare comes to mind, environment, the environment comes to mind, but you've thought more about this all, than I have. Please tell us. Yeah, I think those are all really good ways to start a conversation on veganism, but it really all comes down to do the least amount of harm as you can. 
that I think is really the bottom of it all. I, I actually had this incredible opportunity to meet with a Buddhist nun in Korea. Her name is Chungwan Sunim, and I talk about her in the book. And she was recently featured in Chef's Table in the New York Times. Um, Eric Repair, you know, had her over at his restaurant in New York City. She's revered as one of the greatest cooks on the planet, and she's entirely vegan. And the reason for that is because she's a Buddhist monk. And in Korea, um, many of the Buddhist monks practice a plant-based diet, largely, uh, I mean, I would say not just largely, but completely on this notion to do the least amount of harm. And when you unpack that a little bit, when you do the least amount of harm to other living beings, you ultimately end up doing the least amount of harm to yourself. And that was something that, you know, Sunim, Changwan Sunim explained to me. When you hurt something outside of you, that energy rebounds and it hurts you as well. So if you do the least amount of harm to animals, to the planet, to other people, you're also ensuring you're doing the least amount of harm to yourself. And so when you extrapolate that from, you know, just a basic principle to a philosophy, uh, to, uh, you know, some type of estimable ethics, right? Then what you ultimately conclude is, well, what is necessary and what isn't? What is necessary harm and what isn't necessary harm? That is more of a subjective question. You, as a lawyer, know the difference between subjective, objective, reasonable, <laughs> not reasonable. All of those lawyery words start to come into play. I would say personally, in my personal life, I do not need animals to survive. I do not need animals to live a satisfying life, to live a happy life. Um, I don't need their suffering in order to do that. And I would hazard a guess that the vast majority majority of human beings do not need animal suffering in order to live not just a regular old life, but a thriving life. We, we have gotten to a point as a civilization where we can utilize technology in order to, you know, drastically lessen the amount of animal suffering while living a purposeful life. And the added benefit to all of that is that it's good for the environment. It's actually necessary to ensure our survival as a species. So when you think about all of that, if you go back to all of the fathers of philosophy back in ancient Greece, this is very much in line with many of the different studies of philosophy and ethics. And so that's really where it all kind of boils down. Shannon, thank you for asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Shannon. I love the concept of thinking about, because I think this may get through to people, thinking about how does this affect you? How does this affect me? And I've often thought that because people, particularly post, if we are post-pandemic, people can be real jerks in restaurants, right? To the front of house mm -hmm. staff, to the back of house staff. And a point I often try to convey on this show is do it in your own interest. Be a nice person because you will have a better experience. You'll, you will get better food. You will get better service. And you've taken that in a much bigger context and said, as I understand it, do the right thing. It's going to be good for the environment. It's going to be good for society. But it's also going to be really good for you. 
Ultimately, I think if you believe in karma, you know, uh, you know, which obviously a lot of people do, but I think you're, I love that example. That's a very practical, immediate example that if you exercise a little bit of compassion in your daily interactions with people, inevitably that will rebound to you so that you are actually the beneficiary of your own compassion indirectly. So yeah, exactly. So like, why not do it that way? Unfortunately, what I've seen and, you know, statistically as a social media creator, I now know is that people react 13 times more to things that make them angry. And this goes back to risk aversion. We have evolved as risk averse people. That's how we survived back in the day when we did need meat to survive. Like that is, you know, our instinct is to react when something gets us really nervous or anxious. And as a result of that, You know, in an economy that survives off of clicks and views and engagement and anger and comments, what we're doing is we're incentivizing negativity, we're incentivizing anger, we're actually disincentivizing compassion, we're disincentivizing critical thinking, we're disincentivizing people saying, I want to know what it's like to be in your shoes and empathy. And so... We've got a lot of work to do as humans, as lawyers, as creators, as writers, as thinkers, to try and figure out a way where we are now rewarding compassionate behavior. I fully agree. And I love that answer. And I love that it fits in exactly at this point in the interview, because the next question is going to sound like I'm like I'm saying we got to jump into negativity here, but it's not. I ask this. I ask this with good humor and fun. So here's the background of the question. Two friends of mine in Las Vegas, they are former chefs. They, until recently, produced a great podcast called Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone. And they would ask their guests for one blackmailable fact about themselves. Mm -hmm. So I am going to ask that of you, Joanne. I'm not sure I'm going to get one because you share so much. So I think if you were sneaking Big Macs on the side, you would probably post about it. But, yeah. <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Any guilty culinary pleasures that you can share with us? Oh my gosh, that I like, you're right. I am a total open book. And that's sort of selfishly motivated because I never want to be caught with my pants down. Like that like makes me crazy. And again, that's a very lawyerly instinct. Like I want all my cards on the table. I always do the CF. Like I always, because like I never want the judge to be like, what about this case that you didn't, you know, write in your brief? Like I hate that. So I'm the same way in my social media. I can't really think of any culinary, like other than y'all know I use sugar. Like I use sugar in my food. So like, (laughs) I really like, (laughs) I mean, I use MSG. Yeah. Like I, I really, (laughs) you know, I think outside of culinary, I would say, geez, like I, you know, I honestly can't think of, I wish I had a better answer, but you're right. Like I'm, I'm a total open book. I really have no blackmailable facts. I, I purposely live my life as openly as possible to avoid the risk of blackmail. So advice to those who do. Yes. (laughs) That that is a great answer and more practical (laughs) advice. (laughs) Yeah. For all of us. (laughs) All right. I don't want to take too much more of your time, Joanne, but I do have a couple more questions. So second to last question, what is a delicious dish that is quick and easy to make? And I know your book is going to give people a lot of background on this, but is there something that you can describe in a minute or less and something that people can make in 30 minutes or less? What would you suggest? Oh, 
Absolutely. I'm really good at the minute or less. So this is my one of my favorite dishes. It's called tubu chorim, braised tofu. And basically you take some extra firm tofu or medium firm tofu, fry it over medium high heat with a little bit of oil, um, seven minutes on each side until it's nice and golden brown. You create this beautiful braising sauce with some soy sauce, some, you know, some acid with some vinegar, a little bit of sweetness and a lot of heat with gochukaru and some alliums like garlic and onions, spring onions, um, regular onions. You throw a couple of tablespoons of that over your golden fried tofu with a little bit of water. And then you let that sit over simmering heat until it reduces down to almost a thick glaze. And you've got yourself just incredibly delicious, healthy, protein packed dinner, like way less than 30 minutes. Brilliant. Thank you. Number three for Graham to try. Last question, Joanne. When will you be coming to Vancouver, British Columbia for a book signing? Mm, oh man, I don't know. I will be going to Toronto in July. It's <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like actually okay. well, way farther the... away. <laughs> it, that's yeah, right. It'd be much easier to it's... see you in LA. Yeah, it's way farther away. Um, but I, you know what? I have some family in Seattle. And anytime I go to Seattle, we always make a trip out to Vancouver because it is so beautiful there. And we love to see the the whales and go mountain climbing and things like that. So my hope is that in the next oh. year, particularly now that COVID is releasing, I hopefully knock on wood, it's nefarious grip on our world and travel is opening up. My hope is that we can get to Canada, we can get to, you know, Europe and all of the places that have been neglected by the Molinaros over the past three years. Fair enough. Well, we do hope we get to see you in Vancouver. And in the meantime, Joanne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing some of your Saturday morning with me and with all of my listeners. I'm ever grateful. Thanks for being on Chef Demoni. Well, thanks, Graham. I've had a lot of fun being here. How great is Joanne, the Korean vegan? I've said this before and it bears repeating today. One of the things I love about the cooking community and the hospitality industry is just how hospitable people are. Joanne literally has millions of followers. Check out her TikTok. And when I reached out by email, I was hopeful, but if I'm honest, didn't really expect to hear back. I mean, Joanne produces so much content, she must be working around the clock. But hear back, I did, and Joanne made it so easy and so much fun to connect and to talk. So again, thank you, Joanne, from me and on behalf of the Chef Demoni community. I'm really grateful. Thanks also to my good friends Lee and Jenny and Shannon for the great questions. As you heard, your questions prompted some wonderful answers from Joanne, and I really appreciate you being a big part of episode 60. All right, some housekeeping now. As you know, and as is pretty much always the case, there is more Las Vegas in my immediate future, which means more Vegas fun coming up here on Cheftimony. B and I are flying down on Saturday for Vegas Vacation 11, at which we will meet up with the 360 Vegas podcast crew. That's Karen, Tony, and Mark, and with lots of other fans of the 360 Vegas podcast. Our flight lands just before noon, and we are going immediately. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not check into hotel. No, we are going immediately from the airport to Lotus of Siam. What an amazing Thai restaurant this is. Check out episode 58 if you haven't yet to hear directly from CEO Penny, tableside at Lotus of Siam. 
I'm also going to be publishing a snack-sized episode really soon with some thoughts from many of the participants in the upcoming Vegas Vacation 11. From podcasters to YouTubers, you're going to hear from many of the folks we will be spending time with next week, and you'll hear what's next on their must-visit food lists in Las Vegas. Reviews. Oh, reviews. Big thanks to Jeff from Vancouver Island, who left both a thoughtful review and a very good topic suggestion of a roundtable discussion of sorts to dive into potential solutions to the huge challenges to running a restaurant profitably these days. We all want great restaurants to visit, and Jeff makes a very good point. It is important to work on solutions to the challenges of rising costs and staffing shortages and the difficulties in making necessary price increases on menus. There's a lot to think about here. So Jeff, thank you. Be like Jeff. Please leave a star rating and a written review for Cheftimony. Apple Podcasts is a great place to do that. That will help other people find the show and it will warm my heart too. Well, depending on what you write, I suppose. Do get in touch as well. I would love to hear from you with questions or comments, topic ideas, guest suggestions. You know where to find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I am at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, connect with Graham McLennan. And of course, send me an email. Those go to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that will do it for episode 60. Go do something nice for someone or something and enjoy the good karma that comes back your way. Thank you for being here today. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next time, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>